in the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is the word of the Lord. I have eight good commentaries on the gospel according to St. Luke that I'll be using faithfully all of this year. But perhaps my favorite of all eight of them is the one written by Dr. Fred Craddock. Dr. Craddock's doctoral degree was in New Testament studies, specifically the gospels, even more specifically the synoptic gospels, those three that look most alike, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, But as the years went on during his teaching career, he finally decided that Luke was his favorite. He loved Luke best of all. In his commentary, he begins by saying, Luke had Mark's gospel right in front of him. He is going to follow the basic outline of Mark's briefer gospel. But when he thinks Mark has left out something very important, he will put it in. Example, in Mark's gospel, Mark begins when Jesus is already an adult. Very quickly, he tells you about John the baptizer, about his preaching, about his baptizing, about Jesus coming down to the Jordan to be baptized, about his coming up out of the waters, a voice speaking to him, you are my beloved son, and you I am really well pleased, how Jesus went into the wilderness where he was tempted. All of that in 14 verses. In Luke's gospel, he's already given you 134 verses before we get to John the baptizer. And Dr. Craddock says the church wisely has chosen to follow the example of Luke more than that of Mark. Our two greatest days are Easter and Christmas, we spend four weeks being prepared for Christmas and seven weeks being prepared for Easter. Don't rush, he cautions. Don't rush. Take your time. Today, in this lection, we have John the baptizer and we have a quotation from the prophet Isaiah. This is the second Isaiah, the one who's in exile with his people in Babylon, who's trying to encourage them and says, when the Lord wants us to go home, we will go home. And he describes a working crew that might have well made Interstate 40. We will knock the tops off the hills and fill in every valley. We will straighten every crooked stretch and make smooth the roughest places, and all flesh shall see it together. Let's take a look. Number one, every mountain, every hill will be made low. When John preaches these words, 
He is not talking about building a highway. He's talking about people and their hearts. He's talking about society. He's talking about the very same thing Jesus will talk about when he talks about how the lowly shall be elevated and those who think so highly of themselves shall be lowered. Luke begins here with seven names of very important people. From the Caesar in Rome, Tiberius, to Pontius Pilate. We know about when Jesus began his ministry because we know when Tiberius became Caesar. We know what the 15th year of his reign was. It was the year 28. So Luke is telling you, Jesus began his ministry in the year 28 of the first century of this common era. And yet Luke will focus on the common people. He will write later, the common people heard him gladly. 1994, horrible things were happening in Rwanda. Most of the world paid no attention, certainly did not intervene. There are two primary tribes of people who've lived in Rwanda, the Hutus and the Tutsis. The Hutus are more numerous, and they decided in 1994 they were just going to get rid of all the Tutsis, kill them all. And they set out to do it 100, 500, 1,000 at a time. A few in the world watched, and almost no one did anything at all about it. After this mass genocide... Three years later, there was a high school in Rwanda. Young people who had come under the ministry of a Christian missionary were now in a school where they were being taught when suddenly the militia of the Hutus showed up one day and screamed at these children as they pointed automatic weapons at them, divide into tribes. Hutus over here, Tutsis over there. And the young people refused. One had the courage to say, we are not Hutu or Tutsi, we are all Rwandans. And so they lined all these students up and shot one of them dead. And then said, align yourselves in tribes. Every girl and boy stood his ground. They shot a second one, and a third, and a fourth. And a fifth, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, and the students still were not moving, though thirteen lay dead. And finally the militia just scoffed and went away. Horrible, absolutely horrible, that some understood every person in this room is my sister or my brother. I'm not going to draw a line between that person and me, even if I know I will be saved and that person will be killed. These who seem to be lowly and without voice, the Bible says, will one day be exalted. And those who wore the uniform of militia and go by all kinds of fancy titles will one day be Lord. Number two, All the crooked places shall be made straight. There are a number of medical terms that come from Greek, and this is such a word here for crooked. It's the word in Greek, skolios, 
do we have in scoliosis? The scoliosis, the crooked, shall be made straight, and the rough places shall be planed smooth. Hmm? Dr. John Buchanan came to be our Barton Clinton Gordy presenter. Phil Keeter, who was working a lot in Chicago at the time, had told the committee that Dr. John Buchanan at Fourth Presbyterian Church on that magnificent mile in Chicago is one of America's really great preachers. Bishop Paul Galloway had a son and daughter-in-law living in Chicago. He had heard Dr. Buchanan several times and said, we really ought to invite this man to come. We invited him. He came, and he was terrific. Dr. Dan Brannon and I went to pick him up at the airport on Saturday evening, and we drove him back to the airport on Wednesday morning early. Dr. Dan Brannon had just been diagnosed with lung cancer, even though he had never smoked a day in his life. In fact, no one in our city had worked any harder than Dr. Dan Brennan to try to drive smoking from all public places. That fourth presentation Dr. Buchanan gave was about life after death. He had no idea about this diagnosis Dr. Brennan had been given. It was only after that last presentation that Neva and Dan told Dr. Buchanan how much his sermon had meant to them. He's been pastor of Fourth Presbyterian Chicago all of these years, and now he's announced that he's about to retire. He recently wrote in Christian Century Magazine, Advent has always been my favorite season of the year. Really, since I was a child, he said. I grew up here in the north where the days get really, really short. As you come into December, I always wanted more money than my family had, so I had a paper route. When I'd finished school late in the afternoon, I'd deliver the evening paper. And this time of year, by the time I could get them delivered and get home, it was dark, dark. But always the fireplace was going inside, and my mother had supper cooking. It smelled wonderful. It might be cold and rainy outside. Come inside, and it was warm. There was something good cooking. I've always loved this season of the year. This year, he said, it's really hard for me not to think about the fact that this is my last Advent to lead this congregation, sort of making every week that much more special. And then he quoted Dr. Abraham Maslow. Remember him? Dr. Abraham Maslow, the son of Russian Jews, who escaped the pogroms of Russia and came to the United States of America, landed at Ellis Island. They lived in Brooklyn. They were poor, uneducated. But when their son Abraham was born in 1908, they wanted very much for him to have a good education. They pushed him to do well, to do well. He was graduated from high school, went on to City College in New York, and eventually the University of Wisconsin, master's degrees, doctoral programs. Psychology became his field. He taught at Brandeis University later. Uh, came under the influence of Adler, who had worked uh, with some of the most famous psychiatrists, including Freud, in Europe. He developed what all psychology majors know as the Maslow Pyramid. has five levels on it. You may recall that he said if a person does not have his or her basic needs met, he cannot move up the pyramid. That first level, he said, has to do with food. Does the person have enough to eat? 
a place to sleep? Is this person physically well? And only when those basic needs are met does one move to the second level and then the third, fourth, fifth. The fifth one, right at the very top of the pyramid, is called self-actualization. When you're a human being, finally, who knows yourself well enough that you can give yourself completely and unselfishly to others. But Dr. Maslow had troubles of his own. He and his mother had never gotten along. No one seems to know exactly why. Maybe this was a strange new world for her. She wanted her children to do exceptionally well in this new country, was pushing them far beyond her own ability. But he wrote really nasty things back to his mother and she to him. When he was 59 years old, he had a massive heart attack, was so afraid he was going to die. In fact, they could not do nearly so much for him then as we could do today. And three years later, he had another massive heart attack, and he did die. He was only 62. During the three years between heart attacks, he did some of his most creative writing. And in one place, this line quoted by Dr. Ju John Buchanan, he simply said, I've lived near this river a long time now, but I've never seen it look so beautiful. And then he said, when we're afraid, aware of losing something special, only then does it become extremely dear to us. When we want more than anything, that all things crooked shall be made straight and all things rough made smooth, will God help us bring that to pass? Number three, the part about every valley being filled in, Jesus would say those who are now powerless, voiceless, will be exalted. They will be raised up. Dr. Barbara Brown Taylor, you know, is one of my favorite authors. She lives over in Georgia. She is an ordained Episcopal priest, but she is also a college professor. In the last few years, she's decided she wants to really emphasize her teaching and is teaching uh, as full-time at Piedmont College. She and her husband decided a few years ago that they wanted to get back to as simple a life as they could, and they bought a little acreage way out in the country. She says you start out from the college on a wonderful highway and then you turn off onto a blacktop and then you turn onto a gravel road and then you turn onto a dirt road and then you get to their place. They have chickens. She gathers eggs. They have a cow. They have a garden. She said sometimes we invite city folk to come out and see us, have dinner with us. They discover how dark it is out there. In fact, she said, when the sun goes down, there are no street lights. City folk get jumpy, she said. They start worrying about whether they can find their way back down that dirt road to the gravel road, to the blacktop road, to the highway. They get jumpy. Not me, she said. I know there's much to be learned in the dark. At the very time of year when our nights are longer and longer, we Christians do some of our best work, she said. Those of us who are liturgical, who don't rush to Christmas, but wait, wait, be patient, do the works of repentance. She said, 
Only women who've been pregnant or have known someone they loved who was pregnant can appreciate what I'm about to write now. If you see a woman who's eight months, maybe even seven months pregnant, her back has started to hurt, she's not sleeping well, several of her most important functions are not going so very well for her, and if you ask her, wouldn't you like to have this baby now? First answer, yes! But the second answer is, I don't want it to come early. I've been told that really important things happen those last few weeks for that baby. I don't want it to come early. I want it to come when it's ready. Only when it's ready. Barbara says, don't rush. Let God get you ready. He will. If you really hunger for the lowly to be exalted, the voiceless to have voice, the poor, poor to have more than they've ever had before. And we have it sometimes within our means to make those things happen. Wait for it and then make it happen. Number four, I underlined one of the first things in this brief passage, and it is that when all these seven terribly important people are fulfilling their responsibilities, the word of the Lord comes to John in the wilderness. I've been to that wilderness six times. North of Jerusalem, you have the Jezreel River Valley. They do lots of wonderful farming up there. But when you get to the south city limit of Jerusalem, you go into the desert. And it's desert all the way down those hills to the Jordan River where it empties into the Dead Sea. It's really a desolate place. So God wasn't speaking to Tiberius in Rome, and he wasn't speaking to Pontius Pilate over at Caesarea. He wasn't speaking to Herod in his royal palace. He was speaking to John out there in the desert. When Rabbi Zimmerman was here with us a couple of years ago, he said, if our people had rushed right from Egypt into the Holy Land, the Promised Land, we would not have been ready. We'd been slaves for 400 years with somebody telling us when to get up and when to go to bed and how much straw to put in the bricks. We needed 40 years in the wilderness for God to make us into a community of faith so that when Joshua finally led us across the river, we were ready to be God's people. I was counseling a couple recently whom I'll be marrying on December the 17th. I have a lot to do between now and Christmas, but brides and grooms sometimes like to get married really close to Christmas. So as these two pushed the elevator button and started to leave my office, I was remembering another wedding I had a few years ago, just before Christmas. When I counseled with this couple, I was really impressed with them. The young man I didn't know very well, but the bride's one of those who was here every Sunday. Every Sunday. When I counsel with them, they seem very interested, really paying close attention. Ask if they had any questions. They said they did not. I said, I'll see you the night of the wedding. I got here that evening in plenty of time, got my robe on. I had the marriage license. I went around collecting the signatures I needed. Bride, groom, best man, maid of honor. At each point. I'm seeing one of them. I'm saying, we have 18 minutes. We have 13 minutes. We have nine minutes now. 
suddenly our wedding coordinator caught me there in the great hall and said, I need you in the bride's room. The bride is melting down. I hurried to the bride's room. I could hear her sobbing. I asked the bridesmaids, uh, would you give us a minute, please? I closed the door behind me and I asked, what's the trouble? And she said, my father has shown up drunk again. Every significant event in my life, he's shown up drunk. I just knew he was going to do it. I knew he was going to do it. So wait a second. Wait a second. One day, you and I may know why he cannot face these really important events in his life without thinking he's bolstering his courage with a lot of alcohol. But we don't have time for that now. Remember what we've been talking about all during Advent in the church? God comes to us in the wilderness. He comes to us in the wilderness. Now, tonight, your daddy ought to be strong and letting you lean on him. But instead, you're going to have to hold him up. I tell you what you need to do. You get him by the arm, and you follow the wedding coordinator around the back there, and when you get to the top of that aisle, brides come down this aisle at Dawson Avenue, when you're waiting for the little flower girl to make her way, you look straight at me. I'll be standing right there. You look straight at me. And then you squeeze his arm a little closer to you. And then you look right above me. And you'll see a cross. And from that cross, you're going to hear a voice in your deepest heart say, Look at my daughter. Is she ever beautiful and strong and faithful? Come on down. And she did. <laughs>